As one of America's largest financial services companies, Nationwide makes simplicity a priority so financial professionals can help their clients achieve their retirement goals. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrow and Lisa Abramowitz. Join us each day for insight from the best in economics, geopolitics, finance, and investment. Subscribe to Bloomberg Surveillance On Demand on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere you get your podcasts. And always on Bloomberg.com, the Bloomberg Terminal, and the Bloomberg Business App. We're this Seth Carpenter, the Chief Global Economist. At Morgan Stanley. Is this just about an our start? Are we all John Williams this morning and we're readjusting? <laughs> I had Clarita with me last week at a Bloomberg event. 2.0% is not 2.6%. I mean, are we, are we really talking, as Mike alludes to there, about a new inflation regime? I think you want to separate out a couple things. One is the new inflation regime. And there, if you're comparing it to where we were from the financial crisis through COVID, I think you have to say yes, right? The Fed was consistently missing its inflation target to the downside by call it a quarter percentage point. Mm -hmm. uh, we're above, clearly, above target now. And over the next several years, they want to bring it down. But I'm not sure they want to go back to the old days of you know being below 2% on a regular basis. So if they're going to be averaging a little higher during expansions, call it a tenth or two above, you know, you're talking about 25 to 50 basis points higher inflation, so that's got to be there. I don't think we're talking about the right. difference between 2% inflation right. and 3% inflation. I want to tell you on radio and television where we're heading here, what a half hour we have. We have Dr. Carpenter uh, with us on the broader economics of this moment. Ira Jersey scheduled to join us, just exquisite here on fixed income dynamics. And then we do even better. Mark Cabana is going to darken the door, who's just expert on your world about, you know, the, the different tranches of the auctions. I want to dig into what the implications are of this announcement, Seth. And to me, I'm looking at the idea that they're really going to force the front end to do a lot of the heavy lifting here. Does that pose a greater risk than people realize? So my view is no. Uh, I, the way I would think about it, there was a speculation that back and forth a little bit earlier, did the Treasury just react to the market? And I think you want to remember that the folks there at Treasury, Josh Ross, the Assistant Secretary, the, the career staff in, in debt management, they have, a, they have a structure now. They have a framework for how to think about what to issue. And they're looking at what is the market saying about where the market wants to pay up and where the market's demanding a discount. And at the margin, they'll lean a little bit more to where the market wants the paper and lean a little bit away from the place where the market's pulling back. And we've seen over the past several months a big sell-off in the long end. It showed up, you know, in model speak and the term premium. Uh, and, and they're paying attention to that. It's not that one week to the next or one month to the next or even one quarter to the next. It's, is it sustained? Well, what we are seeing is very much a strong move on the long end in that 30-year uh, yield plunging back below 5% as we were talking about. Do you think that this indicates that really what we're seeing in yields is entirely a supply-driven story more than anything in terms of an economic read on strength and inflation in the U.S.? So 
No, it's so hard depending on any single thing. When I talk to our clients here in New York, in London, around the world who are trading in treasuries, there are a whole set of different narratives, one of which has been supply. People have been worrying about the deficit, which is exactly why Secretary Yellen came out and said it's not the deficit. Uh, people are worrying about stronger growth. Q3 GDP data was very strong. There's no two ways about it, and so that contributed to it. Other people are worrying about is there going to be a pullback from, from risk by global investors. Other people are looking at the Bank of Japan. We just had that meeting, right, where they effectively de facto got rid of yield curve control. So it's not just one single thing. It's, it's everything coming together. So what's your compass at a time where we're expecting the Fed to come out today at two in varying shades of we have no idea and we will see just <laughs> along with you. What is your guiding lodestar? So we're, we're trying to figure out along with the Fed sort of what's going on with the economy. The strong Q3 data notwithstanding, there are some signs of the economy slowing down. The last jobs report super strong, but if you look at the trend over the past 18 months, clear downward trend. If you look at the GDP data, consumption spending <clears throat> holding in, but a lot of the strength was in inventories. CapEx was uh, you know, not very strong at all. And so we are seeing that slowing. And so what we think is the Fed's looking at the same data we are. They're driving by feel a little bit, and they're not going to hike today. We don't think they're going to hike in December because inflation just keeps undershooting their own forecast for where they thought inflation was going to be this year. What does the job dynamic look like with an Ellen Zentner sub 1% Q4 GDP? Well, I think there, this is where we want to keep in mind that there's so many swings from one quarter to the next to some of the spending data. Like I said, the inventories numbers, that was never going to be the primary driver. So she's of not giving you gloom on the job economy. Here. Not at all. I will say that we have at Morgan Stanley, Ellen and I and the rest of the team have been consistent from the beginning of this hiking cycle to say, the Fed's going to hike, they're going to bring down inflation, but we are not going into recession. It is not doom and gloom. Well, she's expert on the American consumer. What is Zentner, when, when she gets fired up, you know she does. <laughs> when Zentner gets fired up about the American consumer, what is she saying? Uh, lots of things, but in particular, one of the key risks that maybe people are overlooking for why there should be a slowdown in the fourth quarter is student loans, right? There was a moratorium on student loans. That's been lifted. We're starting to see that payback starting to happen, uh, and, and that has to crimp consumer disposable income, so that matters. Dis uh, durable goods, right? Interest rates are high. Credit card rates are high. People financing cars and other things, it's just costing more, and so they'll pull back on the spending. All right, just extraordinary. Seth Carpenter, thank you so much. Uh, really, really appreciate it with Morgan Stanley. He writes piercing notes for Bank of America. There's no other way to put it. Head of U.S. rate strategy. He's aged in the last 10 minutes. Mark Cabana joins us uh, this morning. So I'm like refunding. So what? I don't care. Everybody's in a lather. It comes out. And to me, it was sort of, I don't, you know, I really don't care. Janet Yellen said, we're going to do short paper. Yeah, we're going to do long paper. But we're the United States. Our listeners, our viewers who are not sophisticated, do they need to fear the fiscal system of America? No, you shouldn't fear the fiscal system because the U.S. economy is still going to be very robust. <clears throat> there will be buyers for Treasury paper. Uh, it's just a matter of at what level um, will they step in. And we've had a relative uh, lack of buying recently, um, but that's meant that yields have had to adjust. And as they've adjusted, that should incentivize more investors to think about owning bonds. And we, we, we do think that rates are going to keep rising or they're going to stay elevated really until you see one of two things. Number one, until you see the macro data slow. We don't think that you 
you've really seen that yet, or two, until mm -hmm. you see de-risking, until you see investors who think, you know what, rates are kind of high. Real yields, right. almost at 2.5% at the 10-year point, that's a decent own, and maybe I should think about de-risking right. in my portfolio. This is such a valuable conversation, and i got to get to what we see on balance sheets right now, mark to market, and the rest of it in bonds, but let's stay on this theme uh, right now of our new higher yield regime. How far out are you in the longer? I mean, if take any given yield, any given spread. Is there a cabana one year? Is it a cabana three years? How, how do you see the regime of longer? Well, we just think that uh, rates are going to have to stay higher for longer, not to reiterate the Fed mantra, but we really believe it because we've seen an economy that's been so resilient in the face of relatively elevated interest rates. And as long as that happens, that just right. is going to mean that the Fed doesn't have to cut okay. for a while. Now, when I think about longer, I personally think about five years plus. Oh, um, wow. Okay. You got um, my attention. Uh, just because, you know, most investors who uh, really focus on liquidity and liquidity management. They, they think generally two years, three years. Um, but when I think about intermediate to long end, I think about five years plus. Okay, but, and I'm going to invent this phrase right now. I haven't seen it anywhere else. I want copyright on this if you use it. Is it normal for longer? Is that really what we're talking about? Is we're back to a normal rate regime? Well, it's certainly we're back to a regime that looks a lot more similar to the pre-financial crisis than the post-financial crisis. And you've got a five-year window on that. So what maturity do you buy? I'm in cash. I'm really comfortable I, at Bank of America. What maturity you buy given a five-year normal for longer view? Well, it really depends upon what your overall um, investment horizon is and where your preferences are. Uh, we think that if you're focused at the front end, you probably want to be neutral to slightly overweight your benchmark. Mm -hmm. And if you're a more long-term investor, we think that you at best want to be neutral right now. And you want to stay neutral until you see those signs of feedback that tell you that higher interest rates are finally slowing the economy. Not just one data point here or there, but in in the tier one stuff, in labor, um, right. more clearly in inflation. Uh, you want to stay neutral until you see those signs or until you believe that there's a clearer and more definitive right. negative feedback from risk assets, which I don't think that we have really seen sufficiently right. yet. I love to bust Brian Moynihan's chops because he, 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 like no other CEO, quotes his research staff. And I'll go blah, blah, blah about bonds. He goes, well, Cabana says. So let's get the report from Cabana that you would give to Brian Moynihan right now. I got balance sheets nationwide. Mark to market, I get. And I got everything else with massive bond losses, price down, yield up. Should our listeners and viewers be afraid of this non-mark-to-market garbage on balance sheets? Well, I think you're talking about bank balance sheets. Um, and we do appreciate that Brian reads our research. Um, he's a staunch supporter, and we really do appreciate that. Um, we think that what banks are doing right now is that they are really prizing liquidity. They really want to hold as much liquidity as possible. They're choosing to hold cash. They're keeping reserves with the Fed. And they're not <clears throat> buying bonds. They're not buying treasuries or mortgages. And they're prizing liquidity because they know that they need to meet their outflow needs. They know that their securities book is not particularly liquid because right. it's so low in value. You don't want to sell and realize the loss. We saw what happened with some of the regional banks. So what do you do? That. This is the key. The so key what do you do if you're a bank? What do you do if you're a bank, if you've got all this out there and you don't want to sell, just like you said, but things can happen. Things can change. How do you process that reality? If you're a bank, what you're doing right now is you're holding cash. 
That is the game. That's why the Fed shrunk their balance sheet through QT by a trillion dollars. And you've seen bank cash holdings not move down very much at all. They are bidding up on the liability side of the balance sheet. They're issuing CDs, time deposits, etc., to take in more money because they're seeing retail outflows and then they're holding cash. And they're going to continue to do that until they see signs that the economy is turning, until they know that their loan growth is really slowed down and maybe negative on a year over year or six month average or whatnot. Um, and they're going to wait until the economy slows more meaningfully to extend out the curve and buy those bonds. Right now, banks are not buying duration. They've been shrinking their treasury and agency holdings, and they're going to wait to add duration until they see definitive signs right. that the economy has turned. And so, again, what banks are doing right now, it's holding out liquidity because that is the most valuable thing that they seem to believe that what they What does can. holding out liquidity mean for mere mortals that can't hold out liquidity? Small business, Torsten Slack at Apollo talks about 10% small business loans as well. I saw a 31% charge card the other day. It wasn't Bank of America, of course. 31% charge card interest rate the other day. What does the public do given price down, yield up, banks saying, I'm scared stiff, I got to hold cash? Look, it's a tough time to be a borrower. Uh, I think we know that, right? It's a tough time to move. It's a tough time to buy a home. It's a tough time to be a business if you need a loan. And that's exactly what monetary policy is trying to do, right? It's trying to slow down activity by reducing demand for loans and and borrowing. Uh, And so if you're a small business and you do need a loan, well, you need to think about, okay, what other liquidity sources do I have? Um, can I draw on any other type of liquidity? And then you got to ask yourself, do I really need to expand? Do I need to make that next investment? And you got to make sure that you can clear a much higher hurdle rate in order to justify those costs. That's how monetary policy works. It should slow down activity right. through the lending channel. And to some extent, we're seeing that. But it, it right. hasn't happened, I think, to the extent that the Fed would like. Mark Cabana, thank you so much for the Bank of America. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more, Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Joining us now to begin strong on this day of a Federal Reserve meeting is Dominic Constum. He's head of macro strategy at Missoula Americas for years. Literally iconic at Credit Suisse. We're thrilled that Dr. Constum could join us today. Dominic, I give you the phrase super restrictive. Is Jerome Powell's Fed combined with market action a super restrictive Fed? Um, well, yeah, in the context of um, the sustainability of the uh, of, of the U.S. consumer uh, and, if you like, the uh, overhang 
of debt refinancing in the corporate sector uh, really beginning in 2025, uh, you know, clearly the front end is super restrictive uh, and it's going to have to get reversed uh, quite aggressively at some stage. Uh, the, the, the issue is the timing uh, and, um, you know, that timing has been pushed out uh, because the consumer uh, who's got great balance sheet has decided that even as they spent all their fiscal uh, excess that they were given uh, after COVID, they're deciding to leverage up even with interest rates as high as they are. But they can do that because of the balance sheet. Uh, so that kind of delays uh, the impact of this super restrictiveness, uh, which is a kind of a bit of a conundrum for the Fed. So that's the price for longer, not higher for longer, but just longer. What is the cost to Jerome Powell of a longer strategy at these levels? Well, I think what, what, what's happened in the last uh, uh, couple of months, really, has been that the Fed has decided that, you know, because effectively they are super restrictive, they didn't want to, you know, keep on pushing up short rates. Uh, you know, they, they, they don't want to quickly go to 6%. So they, they've emphasized this idea that they're just going to hold at a, at a high level uh, for that much longer. But ironically, uh, that directly feeds into a sell-off in the back end, uh, the idea that a term, what we call term premium, this risk premium uh, that's uh, short rates uh, you know, end up being higher uh, than uh, the, the equivalent tenor of a longer dated treasury, that's term premium, that gets priced into the market, which is why you've had this enormous sort of bear steepening going on uh, with uh, tens going up to close to 5%, 30s, you know, five and a quarter, etc. Uh, and, and in a way, that, that's not a bad thing if you want to slow the economy, because that will undermine and is undermining risk assets, uh, and it will help to, to tighten financial conditions overall. So that's the impact of what the Fed is, is doing. Uh, there is a risk, though, uh, that they run because you get people concerned about the, as you, you mentioned earlier, the, the refinancing of the Treasury. You know, when they decide to issue longer dated debt, that now is coming in at much higher interest rates. And you start worrying about a vicious circle where if you can't reduce the deficit uh, through you know, spending cuts, well, you, you've got another problem because your interest service costs are going up at the same time. Uh, and that's kind of get people worried about this idea uh, that Treasury isn't going to be able to sustain to be fund itself uh, down the road, particularly when you get those sort of, you know, bigger issues coming up, the structural issues coming up uh, that will mean, mean higher deficits. There's always been a sort of uncomfortable tension, especially now between the Treasury Department and the Federal Reserve, especially because the Treasury Department is helmed by uh, the one and only Janet Yellen, who used to head the Fed. How much is the Treasury going to try to game out the market and kind of give a helping hand to the Fed by not concentrating some of those debt sales in the longer end, sell T-bills, and hold uh, pat and wait for things to normalize? Well, I mean, it's obviously a, a, you know, a great question and issue. I mean, strictly speaking, I, I don't think Treasury re really should game things uh, too much. You know, they're, they're not really traders as such. And, and if they were, then, you know, m maybe God help us. Uh, I mean, the idea, I think, is, is uh, you know, you do have rollover, rollover risk. Uh, so, uh, you know, no one really knows uh, how quickly long-term rates might, might reverse, even if we go into some slowing. You know, where is this sort of neutral rate? It, it might, you know, might be higher and maybe... 10 years trading around, you know, 5% is the sort of new norm. So I think it wouldn't be appropriate for the Treasury to really try and game uh, the markets sort of near term and, and sort of, you know, second guess that short term rates are going to come crashing down and they'll be able to refinance themselves down the road by extending maturity uh, 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 later. So I think they'll, they'll probably extend the duration. I think the, the, the estimates 
are, are kind of you know you know seem about right uh, this, this sort of 100, 114 billion and putting it in coupons and because of the announcement we had earlier in the week they can cut bill supply a bit so that's our expectation uh, and uh, and and no gaining of it basically a lot of people expect this to be a boring meeting Subhadra Japa calling it a placeholder. Steve Englander saying, how many ways can you say, we'll see? I mean, this is basically going to be a holding kind of pattern. And yet we see a dissonance growing where the market sees an escalating chance of re-accelerating inflation at the same time that the Fed's kind of seeming to subtly agree with Janet Yellen saying that yields are going to go back down. Do you think they're going to bridge that gap today? Well, they could do. I mean, they've always got the option to. I mean, there are a couple of interesting things going on. I mean, obviously, the sell-off in the long end uh, is very interesting, and I think they can definitely address that uh, in in the in the conference call uh, and and basically say that's doing some of the work for them and be a bit more optimistic. They can also be actually, even though inflation has been a bit sticky on the very latest prints, they could be a bit more optimistic on that. We've done some background analysis on that, and the reason why inflation has been a bit sticky is it's really been on the demand side, less on the supply supply side type thing. And I think that's encouraging because that's something a little bit more right. understandable and sort of indicative that, you know, the underlying trend lower uh, is still in place for inflation. And obviously the global inflation picture has been looking a bit better. Uh, so I think they can basically, um, you know, it, it, I don't think it'll be an uninteresting meeting uh, or, or press conference. Uh, it's just really a question of right. how far power wants to go down the road and try and sort of uh, reassure markets. Uh, one interesting thing I always think is that, you know, to what extent did the Fed really uh, and anticipate or understand that their actions uh, at the September meeting was going to lead to this sort of, you know, near 100 base points sell-off in the long end. I mean, it's, right. it's been quite dramatic. And and uh, did, did they really expect that, well, I guess, is a question. Dominic, I want you, this is outside your remit, but we've known each other for years, so I'm going to go from the macro of Constum to commercial banking. Bernanke taught us at Princeton that financial structure and strength matters. I'm looking at the technical construct of the American banking system, and I don't like what I see. Should the Fed fold in what's happening to the banks right now? Should they today pay attention in their meetings to the weakness that we see in commercial banking equity prices? Uh, absolutely. And I think the uh, thing that so many people miss is they, they think that banks are kind of less important now than they were before because of uh, alternative banking, you know, fintech, private equity, uh, you know, other other forms of leverage, if you like, in the system uh, that, that they people think, seem to think, you know, credit is created elsewhere. Credit is is that there's something called outside money, uh, which is a central bank, uh, and they, they start the credit creation process. There's then something called inside money, uh, which is the banking system, and they continue the credit creation process. And to be honest, that pretty much is where how credit is created. Money can only be created by the Fed and the banks through the bank multiplier. It cannot be created by private equity. They have to get their leverage from somewhere. And so I think you always have to go to the banking system and you always have to focus on if the banks are kind of doing their job, even if uh, the leverage overall in the system is getting higher and higher uh, and the, uh, relative to the banks, they're the ultimate ones who, who if, you, if they pull the plug, uh, uh, let alone the Fed putting the plug, then the whole kind of system can start to implode. So I do think it's very important what's happening in the banks. And I think it's a, a big concern uh, that, that obviously lending is slowing right. down. There, there is obviously regulation and there's some credit, uh, uh, some, some capital uh, restrictions taking place. Um, but that's all part of the cycle.
Uh, and as long as the Fed is there to pick up the pieces at the end of it, right. then we're fine. But those pieces will need to be picked up. You sound like Alan Meltzer, the late, great Alan Meltzer, lender of last resort. Dom, I got 30 seconds. Are you concerned at the massive shift from deposits to money market funds? Is that going to destabilize the system? Well, it's been a challenge, uh, but to be fair, the TGA buildup uh, that the tre uh, uh, Treasury has done has actually you know, come at the expense of a lot of the uh, money market funds and the repo there. So I think you know the Fed has actually managed uh, this process relatively well with the help of the Treasury uh, rebuilding TGA with all that bill issuance. So um, you know, you know it, it's, it's, a, it's a relatively orderly process, but it's obviously something that you've got to keep watching. You don't want excess mm -hmm. reserves to get too low in the banking system. Dr. Custom, thank you so much. Dominic Constant with us with Mizzou today. Just a terrific brief there. Joining us, Dr. Wynn Thin, Global Head of Currency Strategy at Brown Brothers Airmen. Wynn Thin, you were at the altar of Robert Mundell at Columbia, who invented our international currency dynamics. Is there a theory to what Japan is doing? Or are they making up original theory? Well, first of all, thanks. Thanks uh, as always, a pleasure to, to appear here with you guys. Um, to me, it's an experiment. Uh, it's an ongoing experiment. You know, Japan's been fighting deflation for decades, and they've thrown everything at the wall to see what sticks. Uh, the latest iteration was negative rates and yield curve control. And by hook or by crook, it's it's finally getting out of deflation. Uh, it's obviously the policymakers are very nervous there. Getting, you know, starting these policies is the easy part. Getting out of them is always the hard part. We saw the Fed struggle with getting out of QE back after the great financial crisis. So what we've been seeing unfold really over the last year is just a really haphazard, sort of, again, throwing stuff at the wall to see what works. It's been, again, more out of fear and concern than anything else. Uh, they don't want to upset the apple cart. The, the, the recovery is, <clears throat> is, by many measures, you know, quite um, right. modest and, and vulnerable. And so that's what we're seeing. Um, I do think that the, that Japan will exit accommodations fully in early 2024, right. and by that I mean a rate hike. Why should our to. Why should our viewers and listeners care in the Western world? It just seems to be removed and over there. For example, comparing the yuan, the renminbi in China, to Japanese yen, even with weak yuan versus the dollar, it's stunning how weak the Japanese yen is versus renminbi. Why do I care in America? Well, uh, I think as, as uh, you guys pointed out just er earlier in the segment, um, Japanese investors have been, uh, have been basically leaving Japan uh, and chasing yield and returns elsewhere. And that's because of the zero rate interest policy and yield control. You, domestic yields aren't attractive enough. So we've seen massive capital outflows from Japan over the last years, if not decades. If we get to that inflection point where things change and actually rates are allowed to sort of go back to market-based levels, uh, I think the, the fear, at least in Japan and others, is that that wave of capital will come back, come crashing back. We've already seen announcements from some of the Japanese life insurers that they plan in the second half of this fiscal year to uh, underweight foreign investments, foreign bonds, and overweight JGBs in anticipation of normalization. So there's all sorts of capital flow stories that I think, you know, coming at a time when we don't know what the Fed's doing, we don't know what, what's going on in Europe with, uh, with the Middle East, it's just another sort of added uncertainty that markets have to adjust. And I think that's what I think investors in general are, are worried about. It's almost deliberate ambiguity. Is deliberate ambiguity by the Bank of Japan going to actually create some sort of soft, gradual increase in yields and some sort of controlled departure from yield curve control? Yeah, yeah, at least I think that's what we're seeing. I mean, in fact, in, in my opinion, the yield curve control is dead. It's deader than Elvis right now. 
as far as I can tell, they've, they've introduced this ambiguity where it's, it's now 1% is now a reference point. Well, who knows what that means? So the market will, will prod and test the Bank of Japan, not just on yields, but also on the dollar yen. And it's going to be a, a cat and mouse game. Um, but really, for all intents and purposes, uh, J JGB yields are going up. They have been going up. They will continue to go up. We'll go above that 1% uh, sort of reference point within days. And you know, the upside, I, I think maybe 125, 150 is sort of a natural sort of target for the markets. Uh, where we go from there will depend on what's going on in the other global markets, especially U.S. Treasuries. But again, this is normal. This is, you know, we've been, this, it, it's very, what I would say, an abnormal period. And it's been going on for decades in Japan of zero rates, negative rates, year of control, and it's abnormal. And I think that they're trying to exit that, but are, are obviously very, very scared of the ramifications. Lisa, moments ago, the DXY unraveling right now, 106.91. We're really buttressed up here against a 107 on DXY, and it's clearly led by Yen Dynamics. And this goes like the banking stocks. I'm sorry, you just have to look at the Bloomberg screen, and it's screaming a certain level of tension out there this morning without being, you know, a toxic brew of gloom. I mean, it's just... The markets are speaking before this Fed meeting, and it's not all the managed message of the elites. When, uh, to that point, how disruptive is the fact that the dollar has continued to strengthen and not weaken, as so many people thought this year? Well, you know, for the for the U.S., it's good because a stronger currency uh, helps to limit imported inflation. Uh, what we're seeing particularly stress is emerging markets, uh, especially in Asia, that's being double whammied by the yen and by the dollar. But basically, we've seen many, many emerging market central banks intervene uh, to help support their own currency. We've seen surprise rate hikes. We saw that from Indonesia uh, last month. And we've also seen countries that are cutting rates slow their easing because the currencies are coming under pressure. So it's, to me, it's really a toxic brew for emerging markets that is a, a, you know, tight, tight um, money conditions in the U.S., uh -huh. slowing global growth, uh, slowing China. And, and easing cycles in emerging markets. And that's all to me a, a very toxic brew for emerging market currencies. You should have seen Tom Keene's face when you said toxic brew. His ears perked up and he uh, was fully engaged. That's, a, that's what Robert Mundell <laughs> used to say. Robert Mundell would be in a lecture and he'd say, look, you know, the Mundell triangulation, on you, and particularly on unified currency, it's one big toxic brew. This is a difficult time because people have been throwing around, people have been throwing around words like toxic brew uh, for quite a while. And yet we have been in a sort of uneasy equilibrium all year that's really been capped off by U.S. dynamism. You go, uh, what do you mean, Tom? I don't think it's been an uneasy equilibrium. I think the markets are talking here. I'm, you know, I'm going back and forth with Doug Cass here on the banks. You can rationalize this all you want. Yen 150 was why we're talking to Win Thin. So Win weigh in on that. Are things breaking down in a more material way that'll lead to more dramatic moves in FX? Well, I think what's the, the main driver that's really, I think, taking everyone by surprise is just the, the continued strength of the U.S. economy. And, and by that extension, the U.S. dollar, the Fed, and all that. I'm of the opinion that, that the Fed will probably get us into a recession next year, but I don't look for anything, quote unquote, break. By break, we mean like a financial crisis, a banking crisis of some sort. We had a scare back in March with the SVB, but we found that was, a, you know, to me, an idiosyncratic situation with SVB and yeah. signature. Uh, so to me, you know, all the stress tests suggest um, that that the global financial system remains fairly resilient. Now, look, that's look. We all know that that doesn't mean right. you know a whole lot when 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 push comes to shove. But I do think that we are sort of in this post financial crisis uh, so situation where yes, right. the institutions and 
and overseers and regulators are, are all sort of on the same page and, and, and right. hopefully uh, willing and able to head off a crisis. Now, we'll, we'll see pockets of stress. You know, we've had frontier markets blowing up. Emerging markets will continue to remain under stress. Look, UK, uh, Europe are into recession, but, you know, nothing, again, nothing sort of broken. This is sort of a normal thing. I guess that's, I'll leave this, you know, with the final thought is that look, this is a normal sort of situation in terms of downturn. Okay. We're going too fast here in the U.S. Fed's hiking. We're going to slow. We <clears throat> maybe go into recession. But then the whole cycle starts over okay. again. You know, it's, not, it's not something to worry about. Got to leave it there. Dr. Thin, thank you so much. He's with Brown Brothers Harriman. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. There's been an issue in the in the U.S. side of things. First of all, how deeply the U.S. troops will get involved, but also how much aid can actually get passed to go towards supporting both Israel and Ukraine, which no one is talking about. Jennifer Flitton covering all of this. Fantastic guest to, to really analyze it for us. Head of U.S. Government Affairs at Invesco. Jennifer, what do you make of the split that we've seen with the House proposing a, a separate bill to fund Israel that yesterday President Biden said he'd veto? Right. He issued a veto threat. That's correct. Yesterday, we're going to see what the House can do. I think it's still an open question if they have the support because they have paired the Israeli funding with an offset that directly sort of impacts that Inflation Reduction Act and the expansion of the IRS. And so they will lose the vast majority of Democrats. Could they gain a couple uh, while they lose a few of their own Republicans? I think that's the question. And we'll see that play out on Thursday. What does it tell you about the nature of funding agreements? If funding Israel comes at the expense of cutting the agency uh, served with collecting taxes? Well, first, I would say this is an opening salvo for the House because they will have to negotiate no matter what with the Senate. Schumer has the majority leader in the Senate has already stated that this is dead on arrival. So there is an expectation that there will be further negotiation. But when it comes to offsets, uh, this is a reflection of what is happening in America right now with regard to our own domestic debt, our own deficits that we're running right now. And that's what Republicans and their districts really feel a need right. to answer to. Jennifer, I believe it is November 1st. Count it down. 16 days to November 17th. It's been left in the debris. We've forgotten about November 17th. Give us a brief on the importance of November 17th inside the Beltway. 
It is coming upon us very quickly. That is an excellent point. And it is not lost on most members. Also, most members uh, that want to get Ukraine funding through the House, uh, Republican and Democratic members. And the continuing resolution, which is that stopgap that runs out on November 17th, that has to be extended, the Ukraine funding uh, may uh, have to ride on that continuing resolution, however they work it out. And we'll see that over the next week. Uh, they're currently drafting another continuing resolution in the House. Jennifer, there's a real dissonance in the headlines that I've been reading, and I am trying to square them. I'd love your help. Basically, on one side, you see the fight that's escalating in Congress. It's escalating with the White House over how to get financing to back these efforts. And then on the other hand, we're talking about U.S. troops potentially being in Gaza indefinitely after the war to keep some sort of peace. What is the appetite in the United States to have a protracted role in some of these conflicts that seem pretty intractable right now? That's right. I, I think there are a number of steps, though, that we have to get to first, right? Because U.S. troops are in the region, of course. They are in Iraq. They're in Yemen. This was discussed a little bit at the hearing yesterday with Secretary Blinken and Secretary of Defense Austin. Uh, they have been attacked over the last week, two weeks. They have had to retaliate in those attacks. And, and the expectation is to uh, deter further escalation. Uh, that, I think, is the immediate issue before we get to the longer uh, term uh, issues in Gaza after uh, Israel is able to contain that area. There's also a really short-term uh, kind of issue with respect to President Biden's approval rating in some of the swing states. And there was a poll that recently came out uh, that more than 50 percent of Muslim Americans used to support President Biden, and now uh, fewer than 20 percent currently do. How significantly is this going to color the entire debate next year? That's an excellent point. I think the tension there within the Democrat, Democratic Party and seeing some of those polls, but even seeing the streets, right? I mean, we've seen the protests across America, not just among Arab and Muslim Americans, but also with young people, young progressives uh, on college campuses. And they do see that as a threat. So how they're going to uh, diplomatically work within their own party and their own voters, right. uh, I, I think we're starting to see that play out. Jennifer, thank you so much. Jennifer Flinton with us with Invesco there on uh, Washington and the war in the Eastern Mediterranean. Subscribe to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Listen live every weekday starting at 7 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, TuneIn, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can watch us live on Bloomberg Television and always on the Bloomberg Terminal. Thanks for listening. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum, powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.